You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, this will be relatively short after what we've received so far. Um, Gil and others asked me to tell a few other stories about my dad. Uh, I come from a medical family, no clergy. Um, my dad had us at a pietistic Lutheran church, which is god-awful. Uh, as close to American evangelicals you can get, except we baptize babies. But the same ethos of... Um, your mind isn't that important, but your inner walk with Jesus is everything. That made an agnostic out of me by the time I was a senior in high school. The only thing I had on the other side of it was my dad. And I think in glory I'll find out that the reason he had us there <clears throat> was that the, the pastor was no fool. He was a bright man, a Norwegian Hauga pietist. Um, and I think the reason is that my dad loved the Bible Hour because the guy was good um, at what he did. But it was just deadly for me. Uh, I told the story last night. I'll never forget. I didn't even know what sport coat he was wearing that day and where I was standing. And he looked at me and he said, how was Sunday school? I said, it was okay. He said, how would you like to quit? I said, Dad, I'd love to quit. He said, why don't you never go back? Just come in to the adult hour with me. And I didn't understand anything that was going on, but he delivered me in one stroke from those gray-haired ladies with their hair in a bun in the back. The killer was the curriculum the Sunday school curriculum. It was all that stuff about are you a David and are you a this and are you a that, and of course I never was. Just utterly destructive. Um, and as I said last night, when I was pre-med at the University of Washington, it was an atheist professor, vertebrate embryology, that started drawing me back to theism. Now, that would have horrified him. But it was him extrapolating one morning on three, we studied the genetic um, development of a fetal pig as analogous. And he said, there's a window hours long, no longer, in that whole fetal development where three folds of tissue have to go in exactly the right way into exactly the right place or that pig will be born without a central nervous system. I went, hmm. Um, that was the start. Then when my father died at Mayo Clinic, uh, a couple of guys picked me up. They were from Young Life. And uh, they happened to be Lutheran and uh, began the trek back again with these guys. Uh, so, I, I'm a product of my father, top to bottom. <clears throat> the stories I'll tell you will give you sort of a, an ethos of what I grew up in. 
another short story. I <coughs> I would be at breakfast all the time, and I'd be dipping my toast in his coffee, and he had the North American Surgical Manual open in front of him, and he would be on the phone to a guy named Charlie. I thought that was another local surgeon. It wasn't. It was Charlie Mayo. Charlie, it's Bill. I'm doing such and such this morning. Anything new I need to know? Come to find out, my paternal grandfather was one of the eight that formed the Mayo Clinic. It was five generations medical back to Denmark. My name sounds German, but uh, the truth of the matter is that I think way back in my history, they changed the spelling of the name. It used to have one of those slash O's, blut, and I think after the Germans invaded about the fifth time, somebody in my background said, you know, it might make our life easier if we change the spelling of that last name. <laughs> and they probably did, but I'm Scandinavian to the core. 25% uh, German through my mother, her mother, but other than that, Scandinavian. And that led to the Lutheran pietism. All right. Um, as a very young boy, my first job was to, as a file clerk in my dad's medical office. And I'd be in the hallways and hear some of the scuttlebutt. And there was this beautiful blonde nurse with a southern accent. Um, I was sure I was in love. And she came to work sick. And my dad got wind of that. And I happened to overhear the conversation that they were having in one of the examining rooms. I was in the hallway. My dad said, Frida, are you sick today? And she said, yes, doctor. He said, well, I want you to go home and get well then. And she said, doctor, my husband and I can't afford that. And my dad said, uh, Frida, I run this office and you'll be paid anyway. Now go home till you're well, and don't worry about the money. I'll make sure you get paid for all those days. And I said this story last night. <clears throat> he had a lab tech that was part of his office staff, Japanese guy by the name of Carl Niwa. And uh, he was teaching me some of the basics. I was pre-med or was going to be, and he was teaching me how to do a urinalysis or how to do a CBC, a complete blood count, and some of the techniques. And in that, doing that one time, and during those work hours, Carl looked at me and he asked, do you know why I work for your dad, Rod? And I said, no. Carl said, because your dad, I would work for him anywhere, anytime. Your dad pays me twice what any other lab tech gets um, paid on the one condition that I don't blab about that with other lab techs. The one condition was I don't talk about it. I'd work for him anywhere. I forget how I found out about it, certainly not from my dad, but I learned from somebody else <clears throat> that every single semester he would drive from Tacoma over to Seattle to the UW Med School. 
And he would ask the accountants there who was having to drop out because they were out of money. Then he would quietly pay their tuition for the rest till they graduated, again on the one condition that they never knew who was who it was who did it. Out of the blue one time, I got a phone call at the fraternity house from my dad. Um, and we chatted for a bit. And then he asked me, did you say to me one time that you'd like a sports car? I said, Dad, I would love to have a sports car. He said, well, I just saved a guy's life in surgery. And he bought one, just bought it, hates it wants to dump it as fast as he can. I said, what is it? He said, it's an MGA convertible, black, new. He said, I think you need that. (laughs) And got it for me the next week. Um, It was just over and over and over and over. I think he knew his life was going to be short. He had rheumatic fever as a kid. And I think, even without telling my mother, I think he knew that what he needed to do was live life to the fullest with me and my sister because it wasn't going to be long. It was going to be short. Um, He died on the operating table in open heart surgery at Mayo Clinic, and he thought he was going to live through that surgery. He was a surgeon himself. Um, And I said I was at the UW about to take finals, And I said, should I come back there to Mayo with you? He said, no, 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 I'll see you in a few weeks. I even got a letter from him after he died, uh, handwritten from Mayo. But uh, utterly typical. Um, Dr. Fairweather, whom Scott quotes extensively in the book, he was was a P-51 pilot, Mustang pilot over the European theater and <clears throat> flew wing. That he's, He called the fight and he called the fight to an end and then his job was to get the guys home in one piece. He was the first pastor in America who to do a PhD in clinical psych after what we then called a BD degree, now an MDiv. He was the first one. And uh, he said... You know, Rod, I was in men's groups with him. He saw this coming. Everything that Scott's describing, he saw coming 30 years ago. And his own relationship with his own father, um, which was filled with disagreements, but still his father did what fathers do. And out of that, he was able to do clinical psych in a way that um, his wife said to him one time that he just had mastered the best theories. <clears throat> and he said, Nell, I could do what I do using any of six theories because it all comes out of my dad and me, what he did for me. And he looked at me one time and he said, uh, later on, he said, do you realize you don't have the profile of a pastor? I said, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah, is there? He said, yeah, there really is. And he said, you don't have it. I said, well, what am I? Or what profile would I be then? 
He said, if you had been born 10 years before you were born, you would have flown P-51s with me. You have the profile of a fighter pilot. I said, what's that? What comprises that? He said, a wonderful relationship with father and a catastrophic one with mother. (laughs) And he said, that's what happened. That's you. And it's me too. But he said, you need to know that you don't have the profile of a pastor. Uh, that's imp- you need to know that. It's important. I went, okay. Um, so, one of the, when I got that MG, one of the first thing, uh, things I did with it was to drive it up what, we, what was called Hurricane Ridge in the Olympic ra- rainforest in Washington. It was night, and it wasn't long till I saw the flashing red lights behind me. And the state trooper who stopped me was very benevolent, and he said to me, you know, son, you weren't really breaking the speed laws. But when you say the signs that say 50 miles per hour, you don't have to take all the curves at 50 and 60. (laughs) I was just learning. Um, During my years in high school, A few friends and I would regularly plan to study together at my house in the evenings before some test. It would always last just a little while, and we would end up playing poker instead. My dad upstairs would be fixing iced Coca-Colas and buttered popcorn. He'd bring those down to us while we were, quote, studying in the basement, and he saw we were really playing poker. And he noticed that, and he would sit down for a few hands, lose 50 bucks, and then go upstairs again. (laughs) He and his brother, who were in practice together in Tacoma, they had the largest practice in four states. He and his brother one time bought an old farm uh, right underneath Mount Rainier. It looked like you could spit to it. In the whole valley, the old farmhouse and a valley uh, where we could hunt. He even ordered in uh, Caterpillar D9s to make a lake for the mallards. There wasn't one there, so he ordered one made so that we could hunt mallards there as they flew up the valley. Um, And this old farmhouse, heated by a wood stove, a cook stove, and no other way, a cook stove for heat, and an old crank telephone that was a party line. Um, no cell phones, of course, but this one wasn't even a, a normal landline phone. It was, it was, uh, you had to wait till it was free, till you could use it. And I would bring my friends up with me to that farm on weekends. Uh, their mothers, city boys, their mothers were sure they were going to die because we had guns up there. And I mean all kinds of them. In the downstairs bedroom on the first floor of this old rickety farmhouse, it was stacked from floor to ceiling with every caliber you can imagine. 30-30 Winchester, uh, shotgun uh, 12, 16, 410 shotgun shells, 
boxes of clay pigeons, a hand trap to throw them with, uh, 38 special revolvers, 45 ACP, anything you wanted to shoot. We would come in and, and reach our fingers in for 20 boxes of 22 shells and fill our pockets with them and go shoot them all up and come back and get more and fill our pockets again. Just shooting all weekend, anything you wanted to shoot. And the boys thought they'd already died and gone to heaven. And the mothers were sure they were going to die because they didn't live in a gun culture. It was wonderful, just absolutely wonderful and, and just normal uh, for me. He would walk them through a quick gun safety course, tell me to keep watching as they did it, and they got to shoot anything they wanted to shoot, including an OT-6, a Springfield OT-6. Uh, I had to learn to do that. I was always kind of small. And uh, for me to shoot an OT-6 was sobering. Um, when he said, hold it tight to your shoulder, I wasn't really listening. And then I found out why you have to hold it tight to your shoulder. I learned it the hard way. Anyway, over and over and over. Weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend. Um, one time when we were sitting at dinner, we were out at our beach place on Puget Sound. And uh, my dad came home from the office. And he looked at us all, and we were at dinner, and he said, All right, everybody go pack your suitcase. Tomorrow we're flying to Honolulu for vacation. Now, I was in Tacoma, where you don't, you have to accept by faith the sun is there 60 days at a time, because it's always gray. There are evergreens, but it was always gray, and it was always drizzle, and always rain. To go to Honolulu was unthinkable. Then he began the practice of yanking my sister and me out of school every single winter. He didn't come and ask whether they could be gone. He very politely announced that we would be gone for the next couple of weeks. And he would drive us down to Palm Springs, California, just to play. Palm trees, orange trees I'd never seen before in my life, the smell of orange groves, and just to play. Tennis, learn to swim. It was a tiny little town then, not what it is today. And it's where the movie stars could go and hang out safely. So it was normal for us to go out to dinner in Palm Springs and at the next table there'd be Bing Crosby without his toupee or Sinatra and his gang. And they were just patrons because they were safe there. There weren't any paparazzi. It was before that. It was just a nowhere little town where they bought. But we would go there every winter just to play. I remember one time there was no interstate system yet. It was from Seattle to California, the old 99, over the Siskiyou Mountains during February. <coughs> so it was snow and real snow, and you couldn't even see the lines on the, on the road. And one time we stopped for lunch on the way, and a guy yelled over from another table, Doc! And it was a patient of his who drove for the, the LASME freight line system. And he said, Doc, bring your son 
and ride with me in the cab. And my dad said, okay, sure, okay. And we were going three miles an hour in the snow up one of those passes on the Siskiyou Mountains. And some idiot behind us was honking his horn at this truck driver. And he reached up and there was a cable above his windshield. And he reached up and he pulled this cable two or three times. And the honking stopped. And my dad looked at him and said, what did you just do? He said, I just sprayed crankcase oil all over his windshield. (laughs) Delightful. Um, My dad drove Buicks (coughs) and drove them quite a few thousand miles before he got rid of them. And one time, uh, this Buick salesman was bugging him to buy a new Buick. And my dad said, I've got one. It's just fine for now. I don't yet need a new one, but thanks. Uh, and the guy wouldn't quit. He just kept going and said, well, well, just come over and try it. And my dad said, I don't need to try it. I'm, I'm doing fine, but thanks. And when the guy didn't quit... He went over and got this new 59 white Buick convertible, left his there, and drove it again out to our beach place. A white 59 convertible, new, came into the beach house, tossed me the keys and said, have have a good weekend. Whoa. I never told him what I did on the freeway with it, and it was... Just as well I didn't, but I wanted to see what it would do. Um, One time we were driving up to our farm, and we had to drive past what's called Fort Lewis. There was McCord Air Force Base, and there was Fort Lewis. And it was posted, you know, no trespassers. And we were driving along there, and he quickly pulled off. And said, come with me, Rod. I said, okay. He opened up the trunk and pulled out a, a tire jack. He said, follow me. Oh, and he said, grab some of that newspaper. So I grabbed some of the newspaper and followed him. What he wanted to do was to dig up some of these little fir trees that were there at Fort, on Fort Lewis property. So we, we dug them up and wrapped them in newspaper and got all of them together and hustled back to put him into the trunk of the car, got it done, he slammed the car trunk and cut his favorite fly rod in half by accident. It was a perfect time for a moral sermon, getting back in the car. None of it. We just laughed ourselves sick. Just laughed ourselves sick. He could replace the fly rod and he knew that, but... It was an expensive one. This was, my, he was a fisherman, and he spared no money on his fishing equipment. And to see it clipped in half, he thought was funny, and I thought interesting. Interesting. Um, some of you heard the story when I was here years ago. Um, and some of you probably haven't. I <clears throat> I inherited his old Buick. And it was a straight eight 
which meant necessarily long, long hood. Um, and I inherited that when I first got my driver's license <clears throat> in order to drive to high school each morning. And stupidly, I joined what was a high school fraternity. And uh, part of that, you would, if, if there were pledges behind you, you would whack them with a board during the meeting or do some such stuff. Anyway, one evening, the pledges were all missing. They weren't there. And we realized they were hiding out, but they'd left clues as to where they were hiding. So our job was to try and find them that night. All of us were drunk. I had three or four other guys in the car with me and way too much beer under our belts. And I pulled out from a blind corner, unlighted. But in order to pull out with a straight eight, you had to be a ways out into the lane before you could even check each way. And by the time I could check to my left, it was too late. And there was a 57 Ford that clipped me in the front. And my Buick just sort of died. So I went and got a phone, phoned my dad, and said, Dad, uh, I just stacked up the Buick. And he said, well, where are you? And I said, well, actually, I'm pretty close to the house. I'm pretty close to home. But we're all drunk. He said, just stay there. I'll take care of it. I'll have it towed. And I'll come and get you. I said, okay. So he come, came and picked us up, drove all thy, those guys to their homes, then drove me and himself back to our house. And very wisely said to my mother, leave us alone. And she did. So we go into the den, and he's got his arm around me, and I'm shaking, crying. And uh, he said, what's going on? I said, I'm frightened, or I'm something or other. So I bumbled something or other. And he looked at me, he said, I think what you need is a new car. Why don't you go look this coming week and see what you can find? Over and over, over and over and over and over again. Story after story after story after story after story after story. And I realized later on how rare that was. I owe everything to him. Absolutely everything. My mother would contest that, but it's the way it is. He formed me over years of that. Um, we had this beach place. And he called this guy from a company in Southern California to come up and build a pool there. We, we had boats and we learned to water ski. That was a new invention. Two skis, not one yet. To be pulled behind a boat and learn to water ski when nobody else was doing it. Um, but that pool was another sort of mark of redemption. I could bring friends out. And we were safe there, and we could we could swim all day or switch to water skiing or whatever. It was magic, just absolutely magic. Um, and it was just 
the world that I lived in because He sub-created it for me to live in. And so, when I began to realize later on, even after His death, how rare that was, I thought, if guys are interested, I'm going to tell them some of these stories. Because it might be of some help to them. Sometimes stories can do what nothing else does. And these were all true. Every single one of them. So, that'll give you somewhat of an idea. Great gift from heaven. I didn't know it at the time. Absolutely out of the norm. Um, but it formed me. So, if those are of any help to you, you can take them and make whatever use you want to of them. Okay? Thanks for your attention. If there's Q&A, that's fine with me. If there's not, that's fine too. If you are the type of guy you were and your dad had that type of relationship with you. Had that kind of what? Like, had that type of relationship. Uh-huh. The continual display of grace. I mean, what part of you said, what part of you uh, resisted the urge to take advantage of that? I think the worst thing I thought of was to disappoint him. That was my nightmare. And it was almost by definition impossible. I mean, I did the same stupid things all of us did. Um, but somehow... Even in that pietistic church, it rolled off him like water off a duck's back. That moral whatever that comes from bad churches, that Southern Baptist, pietistic, Lutheran, you name it, where that stuff is thick, it never got traction in him. Now what Dr. Fairweather told me much later on, I was in a men's group, and uh, one of the things that he said to me you, was, you owe an awful lot to a guy whose name you don't know. And I said, how so? He said, I know something about your paternal grandfather and your paternal grandmother. And out of it, you don't get a son like your dad. There was some older man who took him under wing somewhere. College, medical school, somewhere. Some guy you don't know his name and who turned him into what he is. He said, you've seen it in action here in my practice with men's groups. Most Christian men have to have a fight with me because I'm so liberal. He said, you and I won't have to have that fight ever. I said, why? He said, because you're dad. Good stories to share with others, or to even inculcate whatever way you do. I can't wait to see that man in the flesh. Yeah. How it what? What well, took it took a while, um, probably because my child was all was almost a childhood of dreams. But I didn't know. I just thought it was normal. 
till I got a little older and found out that it wasn't at all. Um, I just knew that I couldn't wait to see him under any conditions after work or on anything to spend time with him. It didn't matter for what. Uh, that's all I knew, but that was enough. Yeah, one, Scott mentioned it earlier, I'll give you one. I was a professor there in California, and I came home one night, and everything was in a total schmozzle um, with the kids and their mom. And my son tells us he knows where I was standing and, you know, where we all were standing at the time. And so I saw what a schmozzle it was, and I reached for my wallet, and I pulled out my Visa card, and I gave it to my wife and said, why don't you go over to Newport Beach, take a room in a hotel, you know, get a massage or go to a spa, whatever you'd like. Just put it on the card. And I'm going to try and fix whatever the hell happened here today. And as I said, Paul said, uh, uh, the calling of a mother is not just hard, it's impossible. I mean, he honored mothers for the calling that it was. Uh, I really identified years ago with that film, Mr. Mom. If you remember seeing that one, where he was thrown into being home with the kids. We aren't wired for that. We just aren't. I mean, we do it like klutzes, but... We do it because it's got to be done, but we aren't wired for it. To umpire all day long righteousness? Huh? I'm lousy at it. Just absolutely lousy. Um, and I can see how mothers say, we get the short end of the stick here. I can understand that. And so did Paul. Paul knew that. That's a tough calling. Maybe impossible. To do that day after day after day after day. Um, but nobody in our culture has to be told that mothers are of great value. That's pretty much a given. Fathers, that's something else again, as Scott was saying. I even started to read for the first time about a month ago about toxic masculinity. Think about that. Toxic masculinity. What do they mean? They mean John Wayne and you. What I would call normal. Um, thanks, Scott. Um, another one to give you an idea. Uh, you're probably familiar with Tombstone. Doc and Wyatt. One time R.C. Sproul was at home. And he was watching Tombstone, and Vesta, his wife, came in and said, R.C., how many times have you seen that film? He said, I don't know, 19? And she said, why do you watch it? Answer to Vesta, because it's almost gone, Vesta, because it's almost gone. I mean, Doc stole that show. Val Kilmer as Doc. I'm so glad somebody made that movie. Or Band of Brothers. 
I don't know how many times I've watched Band of Brothers. Those guys oversaw the filming. The real guys oversaw the filming of the film. They were still living, most of them. Uh, Band of Brothers, it's magic. Terrible story in the sense of the danger and the war of it all. But um, I can see why after World War II, a lot of those vets who lived through it were terribly troubled, not just guilt from the fact that they lived and their friends didn't. That was part of it. But the other thing was that they had never been so tightly linked with friends in their whole life, sometimes older men. And to have it taken away by the end of the war was devastating to them. I understand that. They were going to have to live without that then. And that was tough. That was tough. Anyway, hope that helps. It's more important than anybody will ever tell you, especially in our culture. It's more important than anybody will ever tell you. And as Scott said, this is done in small, seemingly insignificant ways. Um, a surprise where we're going to get off the weekly grind and take some few days off at something the kids would love. Bits and pieces of that. All right, I won't tie you up. Thanks for your attention. Hope it's of help to you. And good to be with you all again. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.